0: I wonder if there are any uh, Lord of the Rings nerds here this morning. Uh, If you've only watched the movies, you don't count. (laughs) In the Lord of the Rings, the kingdom of Gondor is without a king. Long ago, the king's son rode out to battle, but he never returned. And so his fate was unknown, and there was no other heir to the throne. So... The stewards of Gondor were put in place uh, to to rule on behalf of the king. Uh, Rather than sitting on the throne, these stewards sat on a simple black chair at the foot of the throne. They they didn't wear a crown. They didn't hold a scepter. They watched over the throne until it could be reclaimed by a true king of Gondor, uh, an heir of the ruling line. Well, almost a thousand years have passed, and we come to the events of the novel, and at one point, the, the steward at that, at, at that point in history, Denethor, he's asked by his son, how much time needs to pass before a steward can assume the throne, you know, if, if the king doesn't return? And Denethor replies, a few years, maybe, in other places of less royalty. But in Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. That's a fascinating idea, isn't it? That the greater the king is, the longer his stewards gladly wait for his return. I think Tolkien was onto something. Because here we are, A.D. 2014. Almost 2,000 years ago, the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, along with 500 other eyewitnesses, claimed that their master was raised from the dead after being crucified by the rulers and powers of their day. And after spending 40 days with them, Jesus was taken up into heaven before their very eyes until a cloud hid him from sight. And as they kept looking, two angels appeared and said to them, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so, those disciples went on to spread this message about the crucified king, the risen Messiah, who who gave his life for sinners and who is one day returning to reign. And here, in 2014, Christians all around the world wait for the return of the king. If Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetimes, do you think that Christians will be found waiting for his return in the year 3,000, in the year 5,000, 10,000 A.D. Now, for a lesser king, maybe the disciples would have given up after a few years. But for Jesus Christ, 10,000 years would not be too long to wait for the arrival of so great a king. And so here, 2,000 years later, Christians await his return. Yes, 2,000 years have passed, but don't let that fool you. That doesn't speak to the slowness or weakness of our king. Rather, that speaks to his majesty and power and authority and goodness, far beyond what we can know or comprehend. That great king is coming. And when he arrives, what will he find? Will we be ready for him. That's what we want to think about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 12, beginning in verse 35. Luke 12, beginning in verse 35. I believe it's page 1618 in the Pew Bibles. And let me just read the entire text for this morning. Luke 12, 35. Be dressed, ready for service. And keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant Whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now before we dive into this text, I do want to address something that that might be kind of a distraction. Uh, It's not the main point of this passage, um, but but let's talk about the context here a little bit because I think some people might be troubled with Jesus using this illustration of servants and masters, I mean literally slaves and masters. And the reason for that is because when we hear about slavery, we immediately think of the horrors of our own history, the, the kind of race-based slavery where, where blacks were treated as no more than, than a piece of furniture. We need to be clear that that kind of abuse was evil. And Jesus illustrates that that kind of abuse was evil very clearly in this passage. In Jesus' context, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, slavery would have been a lot more varied. There, there were evil masters, to be sure, but there were also good masters. Uh, slaves uh, were sometimes educated professionals. They, they, they sometimes even earned a salary. If you've ever seen the, the series of, of Downton Abbey, you know, where you have lords and, and butlers and maids and servants, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe something closer to that. Not exactly that, obviously, uh, but closer to that than the, than the kind of race-based chattel slavery of the American South. And so, yes, masters here owned their servants and had real authority over them, but, but not in a necessarily dehumanizing or abusive way. You know, Had Jesus been telling this parable... I think, in modern day, I think he probably would have picked a different image knowing how abhorrent the practice of slavery was in our context. So, so I, I don't want you to get hung up by, by masters and slaves here. Um, I, I want us to hear this parable the way that the original hearers would have heard it. But the point of this parable is not a social commentary on slavery, uh, nor are these parables about kind of career advancement advice, you know, how, how to advance as a, a porter or a food distributor. No, rather, we see in verse 40 that, that these parables are about the return of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And so, as helpful as this, these illustrations are, they are only analogies, and, and therefore, we want to think carefully about what they mean. And we see clearly here that the main question that we're confronted is, with is, you know, will you be ready... For the return of Christ. How will Christ find you when he returns? And and how you answer that question matters for eternity. So this is my outline if you're taking notes. Three points. Will Christ find you, one, alert or asleep? Alert or asleep. Two, faithful or foolish? Faithful or foolish? Foolish. And then three, as a result, will you be served or sentenced? Served or sentenced. Alert or asleep, faithful or foolish, served or sentenced. Nice little alliteration going on there to help you remember. I pray that we would remember, that in hearing Jesus' words this morning, that we would feel the weight of responsibility on our hearts. But not only that, that we would also see the goodness of the master that's coming back. All right, so so first, will Christ find you alert or asleep? And we see this in verses 35 through 40. Let me just read it, read it for us again. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. All right, so the scenario here is pretty clear: that the master has been away, and ex, is expected to be coming home late, and no one really knows when. And so the servants have to be ready for him, even while he's not around. They're to be dressed, ready for service. They shouldn't be, you know, walking around in their pajamas reading a newspaper. No, no even while the master is gone. They're on duty. They're standing at attention, ready and waiting for the master to come. Their lamps are to be burning, which meant you know, in that age, having a ready supply of oil at hand, you know, not falling asleep, not letting that light burn out. And, and all this was to be going on while the master was gone, so that when he does arrive, they would be ready to open the door and, and welcome him in. Now, these are the, these, the servants who are ready, who are alert. The opposite of this are, is to be, to be unprepared, to, to be asleep. Now, Jesus illustrates this with, with a different image there in verse 39. Right? The, the, the unprepared are like the owner of the house that, that have no idea that a thief is coming. Had he known, he would have also been ready. He would have made preparations. But for whatever reason, he, he's, he's not aware. He's not prepared. And so the thief will come upon the house unexpectedly, and there's going to be real loss. What we see in this parable, in these two parables here, is is that we live in the unique time and period in in human history where Jesus has come, God in the flesh, by his perfect life, death, and resurrection, he has been crowned as king of the universe. He, He rules over all, and yet... Strangely, now he is absent from this world. He's not physically present here with us. And and therefore, the, the, the true test of his loyal subjects are those who live as if the master were present even while he's gone. Those who continue to obey and trust him and follow his orders even as the hour drags on late into the night. For, for everyone else, the appearing of Jesus will be like the arrival of an unexpected thief. But for his followers, his arrival will be the, the homecoming of a wonderful master. You know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, realize that according to the Bible, this is the, the sort of meta-narrative, the overarching narrative of your life. No, it's easy for us to go through life thinking that, that we're the point of our lives, right? That, that, that you know, that the universe kind of centers around us. But that's not what we see here. Uh, you are not your own master. You, you are not the climax of human history. No, Jesus Christ is. He is the one who perfectly obeyed the Father's will. He is the one who was sent to defeat and conquer sin and death and it is when he comes back that human history will be fulfilled. And we, well, we are his subjects. Will we be ready for his return? Jesus makes it very clear here that nobody knows when that day will be. His arrival will be unexpected. And some people throughout history have claimed to know the exact date of when Jesus would be coming back. They've published articles and publicized it. Uh, people have sold all their belongings and moved to some compound um, you know, waiting for that day. If you're a member of Henson Baptist Church, please don't ever do that. Uh, you know, as an elder of this church, I think it would be embarrassing to know that a member of my church fell for that. Um, no, the Bible just is so clear on this point. Instead of working hard to figure out when that day will be, no, work hard to be ready whatever day that might be. And certainly, Jesus' statement about the, the unexpected return is a warning to us, right? I mean, how many people do you know have, have said, you know, I'll, I'll commit to Christ after I get married, you know, after my kids are grown and out of the house, after I, I retire. Then I'll get serious about God and sin and church. If you know of people like that, take them to this text. Who knows if you'll ever live that long? And if you do get there, who knows if you even have the ability to let go of the sins and the addictions that you've held on to for so long. I'm not saying that a deathbed conversion is impossible. No, God, praise God that he has such mercy. But, but I am saying that the picture of readiness that we see here is a life that is characterized by readiness, not one that is trying to fool the master, you know, up to the last moment. If you're counting on on kind of gaming the system, fooling the master, know that this master will not be fooled. And you're walking on very thin ice. So practically, what does it mean then to be alert, to be ready? Does does it mean staring up into the sky, you know, uh, selling all you have, moving to a monastery, waiting for Jesus to come back? No, no, certainly not. That's not what the disciples did. I think most fundamentally, to be ready means following Jesus, believing that Jesus is Lord, living in submission to him. That's not something that you only do kind of in this building on Sundays, no, but, but it spills over into every area of your life. It's, it's knowing that you are always on duty for your king and that, and that your mission in life is to serve him and his kingdom. In other words, if you're a Christian, you never retire From following Jesus. You never take a vacation. From following Jesus. You never take a coffee break. From following Jesus. Until Jesus comes back. Your call is to be on duty. Alert. To persevere in believing in him. And obeying him. So. When are you most tempted to take a break. From. Being a Christian. Is it when you come home. After a long and exhausting day, and basically all you want to do is watch TV, you know, is it when you feel like you've spent the entire weekend serving other people and now you finally deserve some some me time? Uh, maybe it's when you're home alone and all the roommates and, and, and family is gone for the weekend and, and you basically get to you know go back to bachelor mode, you know, you, you get to live as if it, it all belongs to you. I know, I know for me. I don't do well when I'm on vacation, um, especially if I'm going back to my parents' house. I know I'm younger here. Um, I always eat way too much. I'm lazy. I don't help out around the house. I'm passive in my relationships. I'm lax in my time in the Word and prayer. That's just sinful. You know, I'm living as if I'm the master. That's me growing lax and sleepy as a servant. Of course, I'm not saying that you can never take a nap, watch a movie, go on vacation. We're finite creatures. We need rest and refreshment. But even in our rest, understand that, that we do that in submission to Christ, that he reigns over our rest and leisure. And even in those seasons, we want to be vigilant in our faith. You're going to need to think really hard about this because you know I've come to realize this as I've been working on this sermon, I was down playing basketball yesterday, and I realized, okay, right now I'm thinking that this basketball time is like my time. You know, I'm away from the kids. I'm away from home. I get to come here and just have fun and exercise. Um, in the office, in the gym, on, on, the, on the car ride to work, how often do you consciously think, you know, Jesus is coming back. Right now, I am on duty, on service to Him. What difference would it make if you were to consciously think that this week. You know, copy this parable down, tape it to your car, tape it to your cubicle, tape it to your, your, your bag as a reminder of these things. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take vigilance. Uh, the, the master of this parable comes home as, as late as the second or third watch of the night. That's any time from midnight to three in the morning. You're going to be tempted to think, Man, he's never coming back. I'm so tired. It's not worth staying up. But you'd be wrong. And that's why we as a church want to keep gathering together, keep, keep being involved in one another's lives. You know, as fellow servants, we want to help one another stay awake, stay alert. You know this, if you've ever been on an overnight drive, if you're driving by yourself, it's really hard to stay awake. So you need other people to stay up with you so that you, you don't all fall asleep. Um, it, it, it's the same thing in the church. Alone, it's really easy for us to grow lax and careless spiritually. But if you have other Christians in your life who who know you, who look into your life, they can say, hey, wake up. You're falling asleep. Don't give up. The master's coming back. And, And you can do the same thing for them. Will Christ find you alert? Will Christ find you asleep? Second, we see this contrast of faithful or foolish. Will Christ find you faithful Or will he find you being a fool? Look at the second parable, starting in verse 41. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, that an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. We'll stop there. Here in this parable, you know, it begins with Peter asking a question. Right? Was that parable just for us, or, or was that for everyone? You know, it sounds like Peter is really concerned that, that the people around him really understood that, that this was not just for the disciples, but for them too. You know, hey, hey, Jesus, I, I really like what you're saying here, and, and let's make sure that these people really hear it. You know, let, let's make sure they don't miss what you're saying. And just as we would expect Jesus turns the tables on Peter and gives another parable, actually highlighting the particular responsibility that lies on those who have been entrusted with authority, with leadership. And so here we have a master who's, who's again going to be absent, but who puts a servant in charge of the other servants to manage their food allowance while he's gone. You know, let's be clear. The, the manager is not kind of giving possession of his stuff to, the, to, the, to, this, uh, to this manager. Rather, he's, this manager is a steward. He's an administrator of the master's food. And therefore, the man- manager isn't free to do whatever he wants, to be creative, to be innovative. Rather, his job is to be faithful, to carry out his master's will. Because this master really cares for all of his servants. He, he wants them to be provided for even while he's gone. And insofar as that servant is faithful to his master's will, that, that entire household will be blessed. But we see then, in verse 45, a picture of an unfaithful servant. Notice that that his unfaithfulness doesn't begin with an act, but with a thought, right? He thinks to himself, my master is delayed. He's taking a long time coming back. Maybe he's not coming back at all. So why do I bother working so hard? You know, I wonder what lies we tell ourselves. that that justify the wrong things that we do. And so, as he believes that lie, he begins to act it out. Rather than caring for the other servants, he begins to beat them. Rather than distributing the food, he hoards it for himself, getting drunk. Rather than carrying out his master's will, he thinks of himself as the master. Well, no matter how lofty a title he had, no, manager, when the master shows up in verse 43, he's back to being a servant. And he will be totally accountable to the master. The master will come on a day when he does not expect, and punishment will be swift, and it'll be just. If you've ever been offended by the idea that God should punish sin, you know, this parable gives us a great perspective on what sin really is, doesn't it? You know, some people ask, you know, why doesn't God just leave me alone? Why does he have to judge me? Why does he have to care so much about what I do with my life and my stuff? But the truth that we see here is that all that we have, all that we are, belongs to God. You, you did not create yourself. You could not have accomplished and accumulated Anything for yourself without God, the creator, who graciously made you and enabled you to do so. Therefore, whatever you do with your life, with your time, with your possessions, with your relationships, with it all will inevitably involve the master to whom all of that belongs. You are, as a creature, accountable to him. Sin, then, is when we deny that he is the master and we decide to live as if all that stuff belongs to us. Sin is when we begin to think that others exist for us, that we are free to do whatever we want with our own bodies, that our own material possessions exist for our pleasures. Do you see, then, how wrong sin is? Do you see how fitting it is that the master should be so deeply offended by all this. Because these aren't, you know, the manager's servants that he's abusing. This isn't his own food that he's eating. No, all of this belongs to the master. When you hurt others under you, you realize that you are hurting people that belong to the master. When you hoard possessions that that God has entrusted to you, you, you realize you're hoarding what doesn't even belong to you to begin with. And when you abuse your authority for your own gain, you are denying the very God that gave you that authority to use for the good of others. We are stewards. We are stewards of all that we've been given. So, so take, a, take a mental walkthrough of your life. Take a mental walkthrough of your home of your stuff, go, go to your living room, go, go to your bedroom, go to your library, take a mental walk through your resume, through your portfolio, through your relationships, what difference would it make to begin to see yourself not as master but as steward over all these things that God has entrusted to you? Your, your 50-inch television, your, your minivan, that, that extra guest room, your one-room studio, you know, your, your extended, apart, uh, extended family, your friendships, your, your knowledge of computers, your understanding of finances, on and on and on. Realize that, that all these things have been entrusted to you, not simply so that you could enjoy them for yourself, no, but ultimately for accomplishing the Master's will, for furthering God's kingdom and His good and loving reign. You know, what what about going home this week and and actually maybe for the first time thinking, asking yourself, you know, why has God given me this? How can I faithfully steward this to further the spread of the gospel? How might this be used by God to grow somebody else in their love for him? Get creative. Often when we talk about stewardship, one of the main things we, we talk about is money. And yes, be faithful with your money, but don't limit this topic of stewardship just to that. Sometimes we we give money away as a way to keep God from the rest of our lives. If you have financial resources, give generously. But realize that God owns all of you. And He calls you to use it all for His kingdom. And maybe you're saying... I don't. I really don't have that much. I got a lot of debt. I got a small apartment that I share with some roommates. You know, sometimes I visit shut-ins who feel that way. They're not able to get around. They they live in a nursing home. They don't have much money. They're isolated a lot of the time. But you know what? Some of our shut-ins, some of our most most faithful prayer warriors. Now they can't do much, but they can pray, and they pray faithfully for for, for this church, for their pastors, for for people that they know, for their family. You might not have much, but God calls you to to use what you've got faithfully. And if they can do that, so can you. It's going to take a lot of thought and effort and creativity, but this is what God calls us to. I think of Paul's words there in Galatians 5. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy things. You you have freedom, in a sense, but but don't use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, in your freedom, serve one another in love. Use what God has given you to to, to bless others. I want to highlight here the hope that we see in this parable, the hope that, that it brings for all of you who feel like you've been unjustly treated. Uh, You might feel like one of these other servants who is being beaten and oppressed by those who are in authority, who are going hungry, even as those in authority are are eating and getting drunk. These very ones were supposed to be working for your good. You need to know that the master is coming back. Justice will one day be served. The, The deepest cries of your heart for justice They will be answered. You know, justice is never perfect in this fallen world. But justice will be served. Christ is coming back. And justice will not have the final word. But, But while you wait for that day, watch yourself also. Even while those around you are unfaithful, you, you be faithful in the midst of whatever injustice you're experiencing. Because you too are accountable don't allow others' sin to become an excuse for your sin. Don't respond evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And for all those here who are who are in positions of authority, of leadership, of teaching, you know, we need to be particularly humbled and challenged by this text. I'm speaking to, to pastors, to elders, to, to leaders, to teachers, to parents, to husbands, to mentors, to coaches, and, and, and countless other. It's kind of forms of authority that exist in this world. Authority is meant to be a good gift. It's meant to be a blessing to those under it. God has entrusted you with the care of of the servants whom he loves. That's why you've been given authority, not for your own kind of self-aggrandizement. No, but for the blessing of others. And as impressed as you might be with yourself, realize that before God, you are no different from those that you lead and teach, you are a servant of God. Here's where Christianity just totally undercuts the nerve of of, of slavery because all of us are slaves of God, right? No matter how highly ranked you are on earth, you have a master in heaven and you are totally accountable to him. And God will render swift justice on all those who have abused their power. Realize, friends, that authority is not a a right. No, it is a gift, a trust, a a responsibility. So so wield it with all proper fear and wisdom. Pray that, that you would lead in such a way that people would give thanks to God for the good gift of authority. And if you are under authority, pray for your leaders. Pray that they would bear that burden well. You know, this is the, a perfect opportunity to do this, uh, to, to, to pray for your leaders right, right here at Henson, um, because we're entering the budget season. This is always kind of a, a controversial time, a time for, for dialogue and, 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 and feedback. Um, as a church, we want to be good stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. The elders are going to be presenting a budget to you soon in our April meeting uh, and, and we're going to do our best to faithfully put in front of you a budget that's an accurate picture of what God has provided and, and a plan for how we're going to spend that for His kingdom in the coming year. Uh, pr- I want you to pray for your elders in this matter, seriously. Um, pray that, that we would have this perspective of stewardship, that we would feel the weight of that. Um, and, and pray that we would lead you in having that same perspective. I just want to be honest with you. I'm kind of leading that charge in, in this budget thing, and uh, it's really easy for, for, for me and for the elders as a whole to lose sight of this. Uh, it's easy for us to be get caught up in numbers, to, to be concerned about not making certain people mad, um, to, to shrink back from making hard choices. Don't misunderstand me. It is our goal to present a budget that's kind of faithful to where this congregation is at, we, we really do want to hear your concerns, to hear from you, to understand where you are. But at the same time, we want to be reminded that none of these resources belong to us to begin with, um, that that's ultimately Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ that we answer to. Um, so, so pray for your elders. Pray that we would know how, how to balance these things, how to be good stewards and good leaders in, in this matter. And pray for unity and faithfulness for us as a church. Yeah, I pray that when Christ returns, that he will not find us to be foolish, but rather faithful with all that he has entrusted to us. And then finally, let's think about the result. We've seen the two kinds of servants, alert and faithful versus asleep and foolish. And now let's let's see the result. Will you be served or will you be sentenced? And and let's jump back to verse 37. Look at verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have him recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Skip down to, to verse 43. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But now look down on verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You know, we've been focusing on, on this idea of readiness and faithfulness. And, and perhaps you're feeling the, the weight of that responsibility. But, but here in our last point, I want us to shift our focus from, from us to the master that's returning, that, that, that we serve. And it turns out that this master is not like any other master that we've ever known. This is an incredibly loving master. Do you see how generously he rewards his servants? There in verses 37 and 38 for for being alert and ready and opening the door when he comes back, the master then kind of turns the tables on them. He has them sit at the table. He has them recline. And he serves them. Previously, the, the the servants were dressed for service, but now the master will dress himself for service, and have them recline at the table, and he will wait on them hand and foot. Can you imagine the the cook, the maid, the butler sitting at the table, while the king attends to them, while he while he refills their cups, while he brings dessert for them. I, I, I mean, the, the the true reward here. Is not simply food. No, it's it's a master who gives himself to his servants. The master serving his servants in joy. You see here the, the reciprocal nature, just as they have served him, so now will the master serve them in love. I mean, what what kind of master is this? Or in verse 44, we see the master rewarding the faithfulness of his servant. Again, not by simply giving him a raise, no, but, but by making him the, the Lord, the manager over all of his estate. Again, I mean, this is just an incredibly gracious master. We don't know of anyone like this. The, the reward is reciprocal. Just as they, they've served them, they've stewarded the things, his things faithfully, now he will give them even more to steward. And that's a great honor and a great privilege. You see what's going on here. When we talk about the return of Christ, we're not talking about the return of a cruel tyrant, of an exacting dictator. No, you are awaiting the return of a loving, gracious master who loves you and who will joyfully reward his servants with unimaginable blessing. Who will reward his servants with himself. It will be for that servant's everlasting joy to be found ready and faithful. And let's be clear, these parables are just images. They're just, just to help us understand what it, what it will be like. The real thing will be infinitely more amazing. Don't you want to find out what that's going to be like? But for those who are unprepared, who are unfaithful, the return of the master will not be good news. Rather, it will be the end of their illusions of being in charge. Because this gracious, loving master is also unwaveringly good and just. He will not be bribed. He will not be tricked. He will not stand idly by while his servants and his property are are abused and beaten. No, rather, we see here that those Wicked managers who once beat their slaves, they themselves will be beaten. Just as there was reciprocity with with the reward, so there will be a fitting nature to the punishment that's coming. The punishment will fit the crime. Again, Jesus is giving us here images, but the reality will be far worse. The image here is of being cut to pieces. I don't know what that means. It sounds terrible. I think the reality would be far worse than that. It would be assigned a place to the unbelievers. You know, these managers are respected and and self-righteous, but when the master comes, it will be obvious that they are just faithless, pagans, unbelievers. They'll be assigned a place with those. And at that point, the, the cries of injustice will be addressed and satisfied. The master that we serve is a good and righteous master. And as we've said, this master is none other than Jesus Christ. When Jesus was telling this parable, he didn't much look like a master. No, if anything, his life looked more like that of a servant. He was constantly surrounded by the sick, the poor, the oppressed, clamoring for his attention. And he gave himself to to them, to, to teaching them, to loving them, to healing them. And that's not even the full extent of his service. Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, Friends, the truth is that every single one of us have been unfaithful servants. We have all acted as if we were the masters. We have all abused others for our own personal gain. We have all hoarded what did not belong to us. And therefore, all of us deserve God's just sentence for our rebellion. But Jesus Christ came the first time, not as master, but as servant. And that servant, he performed the greatest service ever. He laid his life down on the cross, taking the judgment that we deserved upon himself, dying in the place of all those sinful servants. Here, the the, the ready servant was cut to pieces. Here, the faithful servant was assigned a place with the unfaithful. And Jesus Christ died in our place. But all of this was part of his obedience to his heavenly father. He was being faithful even in doing that. And having exhausted the punishment of sin, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. And God gave him all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And now Jesus calls every knee and tongue to own him as master and Lord. And that call goes out to you this morning. This is where readiness and faithfulness begins. By recognizing your sin, by turning away from it, and by placing your trust in what Jesus has accomplished for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I have good news. It's not too late. Jesus has not come back yet. You can be reconciled to God. So, How will you respond? Will you be like this foolish servant? Will you keep believing lies that justify how you live? Or will you get ready and begin living a life of faithful obedience to the master, to the king? That's where you begin by believing the truth and placing your trust in Jesus. And if you don't know what that means, I'd love to talk to you. Talk to one of the Christians around you, find me at the door. Let's figure this out because this really matters for eternity. It, it turns out that this path from, from servanthood to exaltation that we see here in these parables is the same path that the Lord Jesus Christ took when he came and became a servant for our sakes and was exalted as king of the universe. And now Jesus calls us to follow him in that exact same path, waiting for the day when he returns. You know, in the, in the movie adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson portrays Denethor, the steward, uh, as an unfaithful ruler. There, there's a scene, if you remember, where he, he sends his men off to battle even while he, he feasts in the palace. He abused his power. He abused his servants. And he was not ready for the return of the king. In the book, Tolkien has quite a different portrayal of Denethor. He's a strong and just ruler. He's a, he's a man of character who loves his subjects. But, but when he sees the armies of Mordor camped outside of his gates, he loses hope. He, he stops believing that anyone can save them, that good will prevail, and he gives way to despair. And so he also was not ready for the return of the king. And so what about you? Are you one who who really doesn't care for others, who is basically living for yourself, out to get all that you can in this world? Or are you one who is growing increasingly fearful and hopeless as you look at the suffering and evil all around you? Or maybe you're just moving through life, asleep, oblivious to these glorious truths. Friend, what difference would it make for you today if you were to wake up and recognize that there is a king coming who is one day going to set all things right, that that the forces of evil and injustice will not triumph, but rather that one day a mighty hero will return to utterly conquer sin and death. Wouldn't that give you hope to begin fighting sin today? Wouldn't that give you the courage to serve and love others, to to stop living for yourself? Friends, I want to tell you, the stories are true. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is coming back to reign. Oh, I pray that we would believe that from this day until the day he returns, no matter how long it takes. Let's pray. Father, here in two thousand and fourteen, as we wait for the return of your son, oh Lord, we confess that that day seems so distant, so far away, so hard to imagine, but Lord, we believe that when that day comes, Jesus will stand before our eyes, the reality of his reign will be as solid as ground beneath our feet, the chairs that we sit on, Lord, we we will know him and we will see him and we will bow before him and confess him as Lord. Oh God, we pray that we would be found ready and faithful on that day. So Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, show us what that means. Oh Lord, help us not to leave here unchanged. Lord, help us to leave here with new eyes, that we would see the world differently, that we would see all that we have differently. And Lord, that then we would live in faithfulness and readiness. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.